Next Sunday night, of course, is uh, our baptismal service. Then the following Sunday, uh, I'm going to be on vacation, and Pastor Brandt is going to be preaching in the morning, and uh, Pastor uh, Clyde Bumgardner is going to be in the evening, and uh, he's going to be continuing our study in what does righteousness look like and uh, talking about uh, family issues, right? But how, brother, what would characterize what you're going to say? Human sexuality. Human sexuality. All right. As we've been continuing on with that aspect of getting lesbian, etc. So, human sexuality next two weeks from tonight. Tonight, we look at what does righteousness look like, Christians, government, and societal ills. There is so much that can be said in this area, but I'm going to limit myself dramatically tonight to just one aspect of the Christian's duty as it relates to government and societal ills. So the question is, how is a Christian to conduct oneself in a pluralistic society? Meaning that we live in a country that is not monolithic in its theological underpinnings. We aren't all Christians. There are Muslims. There are Buddhists. There are people of many different nationalities and faiths. So what is the Christian response in a pluralistic society? And then in addition to all the various religious groups, there are all kinds of ethnic groups. And of course, then there are those that are also uh, non-religious, those people that would be atheists, agnostics, antagonistic to the concept of God whatsoever. So what is a Christian to do? How are we to respond to the moral evils and social concerns of our day, everything from gay marriage to, you know, Supreme Court justice appointments, uh, you name it. There are all kinds of concerns. So what's the Christian's duty to God and to government? We can look at obedience. I'm not going there tonight, but rather I'm going to just reaffirm that which we all know. I don't think I'm going to have anything new to say tonight but yet I think it needs to be reaffirmed. I think it needs to be repeated. I think it needs to be uh, spoken of because I just don't think it's getting that much attention anymore. So the theme for tonight is true social concern is to be manifested first and foremost by prayerfulness. What should our response be? It should be that we would be a praying people. Proposition. The reasons why true social concern is to be manifested by prayerfulness. This is a study of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First, true social concern is to be manifested by prayerfulness because the Bible exhorts prayer to be made with regard to government and societal ills. 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. Much like it in the NAS, I exhort therefore the first of all supplications, prayers, intercession, giving thanks be made for all men. The first one was all people. I think I misread that. 
uh, the uh, NAS says, for all men. But I have here, note that the exhortation is passive. The scripture does not state, I exhort you to pray, rather, I exhort that prayers be made. Now that's a subtle nuance, but it's a striking nuance. Thus, what is being stressed is not the activity, but the means. Okay, it's not saying tonight that you and I need to pray. But what it is saying is what is needed in response to the societal ills and the government that we live under is that the response ought to be prayer. Prayers need to be made. It is an activity. It is a thrust. It is a way forward, if you will. It's saying that what we need to do is pray. The backdrop of the exhortation is the therefore. First, first of all, then, ESV, NAS, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving you thanks be made for all men. The exhortation is a practical application to the testimony of Paul and the effectual change that have been wrought in his life. The verses that proceed, verses 12 and 13, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Before Paul's conversion, he was characterized by intolerance and violence. He had been a persecutor of those with whom he disagreed. He had been an activist. He had been violent. He had blasphemed the name of God. If you remember, it is on the road to Damascus as Paul had received letters in order to persecute the church in Damascus that he encountered God and was converted. With Paul's conversion came a dramatic change in his approach. Before he was saved, he was violent. Before he was saved, he was a persecutor. He tried to influence those around him by intimidation. But when Paul is saved, he acts in an entirely different manner. So I submit to you, it's not just an issue of one's personality, or one's upbringing, or one's environment. But there is a dramatic change in Paul due to his conversion. After Paul's conversion, he is no longer intolerant and violent. He no longer persecutes those with whom he disagrees. He's committed to the gospel, to prayer, and the power of God to change people, even as God had changed him. For it says, verse 14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Paul looked at himself as being the chief of 
sinners. That is not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. As Paul looked at his life, he was extremely convicted of having been responsible for the imprisonment and deaths of so many Christians. How could he have done such a thing? How could he have responded in such a way? He says, well, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But he goes on to say in verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. Why was God merciful to him? He says, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, meaning the chief of all sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, God saved me so that I would be an example. I would be an example of God's grace. I would be a trophy to the grace and love and mercy of God. Translated, if God could save Paul, God can save anyone. The last person that you would have thought that would ever come to faith was the Apostle Paul. And if you remember, after he did come to faith, the apostles were afraid of him. They had a hard time believing that Paul really did have a conversion experience. It was Barnabas who had to introduce um, Paul to the apostles and vouchsafe for him that he was indeed a changed individual. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Harmonius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul says, this work has been passed on to you. Since God changed Paul, we should be confident that God can change others as well. Next, the importance of the exhortation, first of all. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving thanks be made for all men. The primary exhortation to the church and its responsibilities and service is to be involved in prayer. This is what we are to do. There are no exhortations to picket in the scripture. You'll look in vain. There are no exhortations to start a political party or to seek positions in government. It doesn't say if you really want to make a change in society, then be sure that you serve in an influential place in government. There is no exhortation whatsoever in the Bible that even resembles something like that. However, it is a very popular thought today. If you really want to make a difference, then run for office. In my Sunday school class, I used a, a quote from uh, Franklin Graham that is really pushing for more Christians to run for office. I'm not 
interested in getting into a big debate. All I'm saying to you tonight is that what the scripture says is pray. Pray. But that in our thinking, and when I say our, I'm thinking of, of Christendom as a whole, that is passe. That is antiquated. That is an answer that our grandparents would have given. It's not a hip answer. It's not a new answer. It's not a particularly exciting answer. It's not a novel answer. It's not something you're going to make huge banners about. But the reality is, what the Bible says is, first of all, pray. Number two, note, in the text, there is no second of all and third of all. It's very interesting. We can't go through the whole book of of 2 Timothy tonight, but if you were to outline it, uh, there are key phrases that you always look for when you want to outline. And one of them is a phrase such as this. First of all, well, then you're going to be looking for second of all. You're going to be looking for third of all. What are the main points? He says, first of all, there is no second of all. There is no third of all in the book of 2 Timothy. It is this one and only idea. It is to be prominent above all things. D, the breadth of the exhortation. Four words for prayer. Supplications. These are petitions for the fulfillment of certain definite needs that are keenly felt. So he says, I urge that supplications be made. We are to pray for specific decisions that governmental rulers are to make. We're to pray for God's superintending in specific circumstances around the world. We already ought to be praying for our government and this whole issue of appointing the next Supreme Court justice. That's going to be huge for our nation. We ought to be praying for our leaders. When should that vote be taken? In this president's uh, tenure or in the next president's tenure. And then, whenever this is going to be made and there's already someone that has been brought forth, what should that response be? But to be praying specifically about governmental decisions that God would overrule, that God sovereignly would have his will to be done. So we're to be praying for specific things. Next, prayers. That's more general in meaning. Refers to requests for fulfillment of needs that are always present as opposed to those for specific situations. There are just general prayers that need to be offered. We are to pray that officials possess more wisdom. Always can pray for our leaders that they would have wisdom. Pray that officials promote the administration of justice. There always needs to be decisions that are moral, that are right, that are in keeping with our Judeo-Christian faith. We're to pray that officials have a kindly disposition towards Christians. All right, And as we think of the policies that they are going to adopt, that we are going to be able to maintain the same kinds of freedoms that we enjoy today. We ought to be prayerfully thinking about the major issues of our society and bring them before God.
Intercessions. Intercessions are pleading in the interest of others without holding back, such as specific prayer requests for our president, his health, his safety and travel, a fearlessness and identifying with Christ. As we think about specific leaders, praying for them, praying for the candidates, praying that God would work in their lives and move and bring them to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a difference it would make if some of these individuals would be saved. And those that do know the Lord, if they would be a little more consistent in their stance for the things of the Lord and the uh, practices that they are going to promote. And then lastly, giving of thanks. And thanksgiving be made for all people, that the blessings that come from God return to him in the form of expressed gratitude. The encompassment of the exhortation, and it says, for all people. First of then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all people. Again, the wording here is very important. The first was a passive. I exhort that prayers be made. That is the means by which we are to respond to government. We're to pray. Now it says that intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. NAS says, on behalf of all men. NIV says, for everyone. All men refers to the great mass of humanity. It is viewing society as a whole and not individually. Note, it does not say for each man. It is a collective word. We are to be praying for the world. We are to be praying for all of humanity. It's not talking about each person. It's talking about the collective society. We ought to be praying for our country. We ought to be praying for China. We ought to be praying for North Korea. We ought to be praying for all people. It is viewing society as a whole, not individually. No, it does not say each man. It is not that we are bringing every single individual before the throne of grace. It could not be done, and that is not what we're told to do. The Bible is never frivolous. Okay? It is never impractical. It never exhorts us to do something that can't be done. You can't pray for every single individual. But we can pray for all people collectively. We can pray for our congregation. We can pray for Americans. We can pray for people in China. We can pray for the world. Well, how are we to do that? We're to pray for the welfare of all mankind as a whole. We're to pray on behalf of all men. We are, uh, okay. So number one, we're not to be concerned about a certain few. Uh, that's not well said. Put a word in there. We are not to be only concerned about a certain few. We should be concerned about these people, but not only concerned about a certain few, such as friends and relatives, or even casual acquaintances, but for humanity as a whole. We're to have a concern for all people. How can we do that? How can we pray on behalf of all men? Answer, by praying for all those in prominent and leadership positions, for kings 
and all who are in high positions. We need to realize that our government officials and the decisions they make have huge impacts on large segments of our society. The decisions, the laws that are made are going to impact us as Christians. The laws that are made are going to impact Latinos. The government's position on immigration is going to affect the whole Muslim world. Our leaders, as they make laws, impact huge segments of not only our society, but the entire world, and how we are going to relate to them as Christians. You see, it's more than just issues of tariffs, it's more than just issues of taxes, but you see, as we are seeking to go and share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the political decisions that our government makes is either going to make it much more easy or much more difficult to be sharing the Gospels with other people groups? Are they going to be in our backyard? Are we going to have to go over them? Are we going to be able to get a visa? Or is there going to be a war that is going to be fought that we are not going to be able to have a free interchange of peoples and societies? You're not going to be able to move around this world very easily. So as we think about these governmental leaders... They impact all of society and ultimately the whole world. Just think of the Old Testament. Think of the impact that Babylon had on Jerusalem. And the Jewish faith. And on Daniel. Think of the Ninevites. The book of Jonah. You think of all the nations. You think of the Philistines. As you think of the decisions that the governmental leaders made, it had an incredible impact on America. What Israel is going to decide to do in the Mideast is going to affect us. We need to think about the entire world. We're to be praying on the behalf of all mankind. A, we pray for the betterment of all by praying for the rulers that we and they live under. Government officials, not just our own, but throughout the entire world. Number two, true social concern is to be manifested by prayerfulness because of the purpose or goals of such prayers. 1 Timothy 2, 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that... So that, I'm supplying the so, but it's a purpose clause. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is the goal. That should be the intent of our prayers. How wonderful it would be if our governmental leaders and those around the world make decisions so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now let's unpack that. First, 
We're to pray for kings and all their authorities so their lives would be free from outward disturbance. Peaceful. Peaceful. Number one, lives that are free from persecution and governmental interference that would limit the Christian and the exercise of his faith. We're to pray that we would be able to live our Christianity in peace. That government would let us alone. We have incredible religious freedoms today, many of which we take for granted. We need to pray that we don't lose them. That we'd always have the ability to assemble like we are tonight with no police, no monitors, no cameras focused in and observing our gathering and monitoring what is being said from the pulpit and who is here and taking attendance and all kinds of things. We're to pray that we could have peace. Peace. Next, we are to pray for kings that are in authority so that our lives will be free from inner turmoil. The word quiet life. Okay? Peaceable. Number one, we are to pray so that we are not living in a situation where our conscience is grieved. We are to be praying so that our righteous souls aren't vexed day by day. That should be are not vexed day by day. You think of of, uh, Lot in uh, Sodom, and it says his, his soul was vexed from day to day. We ought to be praying that we are not going to be placed in a position where we are going to have a conscience that we can't go along with what the government is telling us to do. We, we just can't support that. We have to stand against it. We have to fight. We, fight in a peaceable way. We have to be willing to be persecuted. We have to be willing to go to prison if that's the case. But, you know, we ought to be praying that we aren't facing those kinds of things. The, the inner moral dilemma of what we should do or how we should spot, respond or in the workplace or the things that we're talking about on Sunday nights, like how to be responsible, responding to the homosexual community, etc. That, that we aren't in inner turmoil over these decisions. Third, we're to pray for kings and all their authorities so our lives would be lived in true godliness. True godliness, which means a true Christ-likeness who did not establish a political upheaval, though that is what all the Jews expected from him. The Jews were looking for a Messiah that would deliver the nation of Israel from Rome. That's not what Jesus did. But there are still a lot of Christians today that are looking for spiritual leaders that are going to provide for them a political deliverance rather than a moral and spiritual deliverance. They were looking for a deliverance from the oppression of the Roman government, but it did not come. We're to pray so that our response to societal ills mirror the response of Jesus. We are to look like Jesus. We are to do what Jesus would do. We are to respond the way that Jesus responds. And we don't have to guess 
We have all these examples in the New Testament of Jesus being tested time and time again in relationship of government to the Torah, the law of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes, was the question. Is it lawful for us to do this? Is it lawful for us to do that? And all these hard questions that were put to Jesus, and Jesus answered them all. He is the perfect example. He teaches us how we are to respond. Jesus didn't simply say, turn the other cheek. But when Jesus was struck, when he was put on trial, he did indeed turn the other cheek. He wasn't the hypocrite. He wasn't like the Pharisees who They said one thing and they did another. Jesus lived out what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are to adopt the same lifestyle so that Jesus is glorified, so that people can see what true Christianity looks like. One of the things that grieves me in our society is that the church is acting in such a way that it doesn't reflect who Jesus really is. People can't see Jesus in the church because of our response to the world's evils, because we are not acting like Jesus acted, but we're acting in a a completely opposite way. It amazes me how religious leaders are endorsing the people that they are endorsing. How can we do that? I don't get it. It isn't presenting the right image of Jesus. D, we're to pray for kings and for all that are in authority so our lives would be lived in dignity and worthy of respect. Honesty. Honesty. The uh, ESV translates that word dignified in every way. We are pray as opposed to adopting other tactics so that we are respected because of our conduct. Christianity is becoming confrontational taking measure into one's own hands. Confrontational Christianity is not becoming to the gospel and is not a dignified gospel that is worthy of respect. The activists who are blowing up abortion centers, that's old news, are not paying their fines and not promoting a biblical Christianity. These individuals are not worthy of respect and certainly not going to gain the respect of an unbelieving world. That is not what people are drawn to. That's not what they admire. That's what everybody else is doing. So Ephesians says that our warfare is not like the warfare of those around us. 1 Peter 2, 10 to 20, you know the passage. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, so that they don't have an accusation to bring against you. Three, true social concern is to be manifested by prayerfulness because of God's view of such prayers. God, such prayers are appropriate, for this is good. This is good. God deems prayer as a proper response to a pluralistic society. Why would one even imagine that such prayers would be inappropriate? It's hard to imagine. 
that one would think that that would be an inappropriate response. But some people do. And it's a sad state of affairs when to pray is perceived as doing nothing. B, such prayers are welcomed, and it is pleasing in the sight of God. God delights in this kind of response to hardship. To rely upon God is what he wants from us. To pray is to give God the proper place of his sovereign rule in this world. What God wants most from us is to trust in him. We glorify God when we acknowledge him as the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. When we acknowledge that we cannot do what you can do. God is glorified in these prayers. He has given his rightful due. In the book of Daniel, we are told that God is able to turn the king of the heart, the king's heart, in any way in which he wants it to go. And we saw what God did with Nebuchadnezzar and the prayers of Daniel. And what he did. See, such prayers are in keeping with the spread of the gospel, who desires all people to be saved. Much of Christianity's response to societal issues is counterproductive to the spread of the gospel. In many ways. In many ways. First, it tends to replace the spread of the gospel. The church's doesn't have time to spread the gospel when it's out picketing and doing all these other things. Secondly, it doesn't adorn the gospel when we are doing these other things. Number two, there are many societal needs. The greatest need and the ultimate answer to the other societal ills is for people to be saved. We've been spending many weeks on this subject of what does righteousness look like, and you may have gotten lost in the many weeks. So let me go back to the very beginning. And I said there are two emphases that are striving for prominence in Christianity today. The one is a concern for moral issues, sexual issues, conduct, behaviors, the other are social justice issues, poverty, oppression, sickness, removing disease. And it is easy for the church to begin to try to solve societal ills, like the social justice issues, and pass laws so that people aren't oppressed, or try to overthrow certain governments so that people aren't oppressed and sending people to relieve poverty and all these other things. Well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, per se. And on the other side, trying to pass laws of morality and, and uh, character, etc., etc. But all of these things stem from a common root, and that is sinfulness. People oppress others because they are sinful. 
Our country was different 200 years ago than it was today because of the influence of the Puritans, the pilgrims, the people who came to this world seeking religious freedoms. They had a relationship to God that created an atmosphere, a community, a society of care, concern, and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul teaches us that the answer to the societal ills is for people to be saved. If people are truly born again, they are going to change. They are going to begin to be concerned about their brother, their sister, their neighbor. They aren't going to be violent, as Paul was not violent. As Paul's life is changed, so too society can be changed with the spread of the gospel. The gospel is the answer. And we are to be praying that the gospel can go forth. And the gospel can be seen. And we can continue the work of the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, people get into all kinds of theological arguments and issues, and the text here is, is simple. It's the same all the way through. This is not an argument about the extent of the atonement, okay? Every person saved, or, you know, who did Christ die for? It is a statement that God wants all people to be saved, right? There are going to be people saved from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. That's what he has decreed. It's consistent all the way through this text. We're to be concerned about peoples from every area. We ought to be concerned that the gospel is going into every remote part of this world. For that will make this world a better place. That will deal with oppression. That will deal with, with poverty. That will deal with the societal ills. That will deal with the lifestyle issues, the morality issues, when the gospel comes to a society. And the society responds to that gospel in faith. It transforms that society. We are blessed. We live in a Bible belt. We have a lot of gospel preaching churches. And as a result, we have not only freedom to share our faith, but by and large, we don't have to worry about being shot, robbed. Not that there isn't uh, murder and mayhem, but the point is that because we live in such a Bible Belt area, that it has a transforming effect on our culture, on our society. We are better off living here than in many parts of the United States that are opposed to 
the gospel and the things of God. Those are dangerous places to live. Those are places of great poverty. Those are places of oppression. Those are places where people are being taken advantage of. Those are awful places to live. But when the gospel transforms a community, it makes it a wonderful place to live. We're to be praying in all these different ways with the end result by living this quiet life, being left alone, that we can worship and serve God the way that we would, that we aren't going to be torn by conscious sake, but we're going to be free to exercise our religious freedoms and to go and do what God would have us to do, that borders are going to be open, that we can go to other countries, other lands, and spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So third, to pray is the God-given means to meet the needs of the spread of the gospel. Therefore, pray earnestly of the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Again, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how quickly we just move from the scriptures. You know, the, the whole idea today is now, if you want to get people involved in missions, you better send them on a short-term missions trip or whatever. But the Bible says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest. By the way, I'm not against short-term mission trips. okay? Don't go away thinking I said that. I'm not, okay? They're fine. All I'm saying is this idea that that's the only way stands in stark contrast to what the Word of God says. Missions have been going on for hundreds of years before we had the means and wherewithal to be able to do the things that we're doing today and travel. God must move in the heart of an individual and stir that individual, embolden that individual to share their faith, to be concerned about their next-door neighbor, to be concerned about that person of a different lifestyle, to be concerned about that person of a different skin, to be concerned about that person who's poor, to be concerned. The Spirit of God has to move in us. And what the Spirit of God needs us to move us to do is to pray and spread the gospel. And our world would be a different place. We've got to be convinced of that. And we can't lose sight of that message. Because it's being lost sight of. Conclusion. We are not to be an apathetic church. We are to become exercised by what we see and hear. But exercised to do what? Not riot. Not picket, not to run for office, but to pray and spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to pray for our government. Help us to pray on behalf of all people for foreign governments, for foreign decisions. Think of North Korea and the whole issue of 
nuclear, atomic weapons. We think of Iran, we think of Iraq, we think of Syria. And the people that are being beheaded, the the people that are being driven out of their homes. We, We think of the Ukraine and the spread of Russian influence and territory. Or there are many places around this world where there is oppression, where there is disease, where there is hardship, where there is difficulty. Oh Lord, we pray for their leaders. We pray that they would be concerned for their people. We pray that they would make right decisions. We pray for peace in this world. We pray that there would be a tranquility. We pray for our own government, that we can continue to worship freely. We pray that we would continue to have open borders where we can go back and forth and share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, help us to be truly concerned for all the peoples of this world. And Lord, may we truly believe that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make a difference. And as we go, Lord, help us to live as Jesus did. Help us to alleviate the poverty. Help us to bring healing to the peoples, even as you brought healing. Help us to establish uh, the sanctuaries, the, the hospitals, the, the things that accompany the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.